Today is Tuesday, May 2nd. The year is 2022. This is No Easy Answers and I am your host, Jules Taylor. Today, like all days, I have no easy answers for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of No Easy Answers, a Marxist podcast about politics, philosophy, and the human condition. I am going to keep this intro short and sweet, because right now I am running around like a chicken with my head cut off preparing to move to Texas. There's a lot of reasons why I'm moving to Texas, and as you can hear, I didn't even have the time to record a proper introduction. I'll be traveling for about 10 days, stopping to see friends and family along the way, but I did want to leave you with an episode in the meantime. This is a roundtable discussion I think you will enjoy very much. I want to send a very special thank you to our panel, Mel, Chris, Max, and Francis. This was a very open and vulnerable conversation among comrades, and I do want to continue these kinds of conversations every few weeks. We talk about revolutionary trauma, and how we can build a better world without replicating the same systems of oppression we struggle against. We're just going to get right into it. Okay, are we good? We good? Dope. Man, it's been a while. Um, Hi, I'm Mel Buer. I am a freelance journalist and adjunct constructor based in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, Most recent work I've done is work on the Kellogg strike, covering that. And then I also covered a union election in Sioux City, Iowa. I am now covering the uh, Indiana University grad workers strike authorization vote that's about to happen this weekend. Um, So pretty much like most of my reporting happens in the Midwest or the Great Plains, because that's where I'm located. Um, I have a podcast that's currently on hiatus that I sometimes co-host with my friend, Chris, who's also in this chat. And um, I am writing a book about radical media called Fuck Your Newsroom. That's supposed to be coming out here next year. Um, Yeah. Hi. Hello. Uh, Before we started recording, we were talking about a seriously wrong podcast episode that took place at this point three years ago now. That was... um, uh, sort of a debate between Brett from Rev Left Radio and the Wrong Boys about uh, just revolution in general. Um, and I think the the main topic that I pulled from that conversation was this idea about um, when you have a lasting rupture, like we always tend to anticipate in revolutionary sort of scenarios, what happens to the folks who live through that, right? Um and uh, do we have some sort of contingency plan for what could potentially, if, you know, if the if the revolution is violent or even remotely reaches that point, how do we sort of prefigure spaces of care and mourning and grief and all of these things to ensure that a generation of individuals is not traumatized into creating some sort of like uh, self fulfilling prophecy? if you will. Um, and that was, I don't, I don't remember how we got started on this topic, Jules, when we first got into the room, but it was kind of the thing that we talked about in terms of like, just like the wrong boys and their thoughts about it. I always thought it was a very interesting thing to bring up in conversations about revolution in general, you know, my own personal politics, I'm kind of an anarcho syndicalist. That's kind of where I sit. Um, and I, studied Marxism in my grad program, right? So that's kind of where I sit with all this. But my own thoughts after 2020 is that those are things that we should be taking um, taking the time to think about 
and and how to um, find ways to mitigate those issues or to find some sort of support within a revolutionary community, however that looks. I don't know. So that's kind of where I'm the conversation that we started before we started recording. We can continue this if we want to, or we can move on to a different topic. But hello. Nice to meet everyone. All right. Um, so welcome everyone to another episode of No Easy Answers. We've got about half a dozen people in this room right now. We're joined by Mel, who just introduced herself. We've got, in addition to that, we have Chris, we have Francis, we have Max. Um, for the sake of not um, doing all the lifting myself, I would ask that the first time you chime in, please introduce yourself briefly for the audience. And um, with that, um, I want to say that uh, I thank you everyone for joining me and thank you for uh, you know, I didn't really have much of a script or a plan or an itinerary. I just wanted to talk about uh, the various ways the world is burning right now. And um, part of that is, you know, I was saying before we hit record, is that, yeah, of course, you should, you know, get off of Twitter and go hang with real people and see what they think. But, I, you know, I find myself just wanting to hear, like, the voices of some of the the people that I listen to, people that I call friends, comrades, other people that have connected with me online through No Easy Answers. And so I am I'm just elated to have every one of us, every one of you here with me right now. Um, but yeah, I think um, part of what I wanted to add to what you were saying about um, somebody had mentioned before we hit record as well, the term revolutionary trauma. I don't know if that's a thing, but I want to adopt it in this conversation to sort of refer to that. Um, uh, what harm will inevitably come of any sort of overturning of a current system, right? And so we have to be, in, in this conversation, uh, sort of acknowledging all of that that comes with it and planning ahead for that and trying to figure out what even some of this looks like out, outside of the abstract. Um, so, um, in addition to that, I feel like there is some sort of, like if we are... Marxist in the sense that we uh, want to advocate for a dictatorship of the proletariat, right? If we are uh, people who are historically minded and and particularly uh, fixated on like the history of the USSR, Russian history, stuff like that at this moment, um, I think that there is a conversation to be had with um, regarding the type of authoritarianism, if you could call it that i'll use uh air quotes like what does that mean in terms of like those of us who want to build a worker state who wish to overthrow the current system like how does the presentation the media presentation of this war happening in real time that we you know how does that affect how we look at that how we how we plan for that um, i'm hoping we can get to some or all of that in this conversation uh but with that um i don't know who wants to go from there but i'll let anyone chime in from this point so I'm going to just chime in uh, in order to throw someone else under the bus. <laughs> so, um, but hello, uh, everyone. This is Maximilian Alvarez. Uh, I am the host of the podcast Working People, uh, which Jules uh, produces. And uh, shout out to us. We just put out our 200th episode uh, public, you know, regular season episode. That's not including bonus episodes, but congrats. Thank you. Yeah. We well uh, deserved. Yes. 
and I, I, I had to, uh, I had to make it difficult for Jules and I gave him a three hour beast <laughs> to prepare <laughs> for, for episode 200. So, um, yeah, just in, eternally grateful to get to work with Jules, who's just made the show sound and be a whole lot better. So I'm always happy to come on no easy answers, which is a phenomenal show and an incredibly valuable show in its own right. Um, and yeah, I think this is a really interesting and important discussion to confront in an open, vulnerable and comradely way, right? Because we can't keep kicking this can down the road. We can't keep trying to push this under the rug because it does sort of eat away at your ability to be present, right? You know, we kind of like dissociate from the reality in front of us. And I think if you want an antidote to that type of dissociation, which no one can blame you for, right? It's, it's your body's like natural, I think response to the things that we're talking about, right? I would always tell my students when I was um, back uh, uh, teaching at the university of Michigan, I would tell them, I was like, whether we're talking about postmodernism or, you know, structuralism or neoliberalism or whatever, all these big isms that sound very scary when you first hear them, I would say, look, you are the best diagnostic for whether or not this term actually has any meaning, right? You know, like, do you feel a certain way in the society that you live in right now about literature, the religion, the government, right? Let's start there and work, you know, backwards to try to understand how you are in effect kind of embodying the things that this term neoliberalism or, you know, late stage capitalism is trying to describe. And let's see if this person describing it is actually doing a good job, so on and so forth. So again, I, I say that to say that I think that it's important to start uh, from where we're starting, right? How we ourselves are as, as human beings in the world are in fact responding to the changing environments that we are ourselves a part of. Um, <clears throat> and I think that, again, that sort of dissociation is in a way our, our body sort of natural response to compounding traumas and, and crises, uh, which we are very much experiencing at the moment. And I would say um, if you want the sort of antidote to that, you should start by reading um, Francis Madison's phenomenal interview, extended interview with um, the great Kali Akuno from Cooperation Jackson, which we were honored to publish at The Real News. Oh, I guess I forgot to say that. By the way, I'm also the editor-in-chief at The Real News Network uh, in Baltimore. You guys should check us out. <laughs> um, but yeah, Francis like went to Jackson spoke with Callie about this very stuff. Like, how do we confront the hell before us um, without giving into despair by using the tools that we have and the connections that we have to carve a path into a future worth living in? And so that's what I meant when I say I'm going to hop in just to throw someone else under the bus. So that's my way of uh, calling Francis to the stage. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to try to sum up that whole piece in, in one go, but I thought it would just be a great start jumping off point for, for everything else, Francis. Um, you know, I came to the South particularly because I was really interested in Cooperation Jackson. I had been uh, 
you know, bouncing around a little bit. I had, I was doing communications for the Water Protector Legal Collective in North Dakota, not during the uprising, but in the legal aftermath. After we finished the legal program, I was recruited down to the U.S.-Mexico uh, border. I was doing communications for the National Butterfly Center uh, during that kind of a really acute phase of um, border wall struggle. And between those two experiences, and I don't know if any of you have, uh, Jules probably, definitely, but, you know, uh, living in the border uh, zone is its own kind of trauma. And probably one of the worst things that's ever happened to me in life happened to me there, which was I was... I'm probably going to break down telling you this because we, but the subject is trauma. <laughs> so um, I was escorting some uh, film documentarians that had come from Brooklyn and we were down near the Rio Grande and we came across some migrants that had just come over. And there was a father and his um, 12 year old daughter and a mother and uh, a, a younger daughter. And um, I immediately called one of the lawyers that we were working with, um, uh, you know, to ask what to do. And he speaks Espanol, so he got on the telephone with them. And um, they told him that they wanted to submit to uh, the system. They wanted to, you know, declare themselves as uh, asylees, you know, seeking uh, refuge in the United States. And uh, he told me that I had to call Border Patrol. So um, the young film documentarians were frantic. They didn't believe me. They actually, and I'm proud of them for this. They they called somebody else that they knew that uh, spoke Espanol and put them on the phone with the migrants, and they confirmed that that's what they wanted. So um, I had to call Border Patrol. You know, and they were arguing with me. They were saying, you know, you know, you know, let's let's take them somewhere. Let, you know, but of course, if you do that, the whole weight of the federal government comes bearing down on you to crush you. And so I knew it was impossible. But the family separation was still going on. And I'm looking at these two families and I'm knowing what's going to happen to them when you're taken to the McAllen Detention Center. So the. The 12-year-old daughter was on her period. She was bleeding through her clothes. She was in agony with cramps. So just to kind of get my head together, I jumped in the car. I ran to the Dollar General. I got, you know, pads and new underpants and Tylenol and some cookies and bread and cheese and, you know, brought it back. And, you know, just to show these two families just a moment of kindness and a moment of compassion while we're waiting for the fucking border patrol to come pick them up and take them and God knows what. And I do not know what happened to them. I mean, I know that very probably that they were separated and put in the, you know, in the freezing uh, rooms with the Mylar blankets and all that shit that was going on at that time. So when I left Mission, Texas, I was something of a wreck. Now that, that experience had been kind of, there had been many other experiences in North Dakota um, working with water protectors who were incredibly traumatized by standing up to an asymmetrical uh, militarized police force. And I remember I was at, uh, we were doing a warrant tour at um, one of the powwows because we were winding down the legal program and there were about a hundred or so kind of recalcitrant water protectors who didn't want to 
you know, come in from the cold and avail themselves of the kind of free legal services and all the services that were available and for a variety of reasons. And so we decided because, you know, we had kind of exhausted all the methods of telephone and email and writing to people that we would tour in the Dakotas and try and reach as many local local people as possible. So I was at the uh, one of the powwows in, at Fort Yates in Standing Rock and um, people approached our booth. Uh, the first day, not so much. The first day, they just kind of, you know, walked around and checked us out. But the second day, people started coming over. And it wasn't about the warrant. They didn't have warrant, outstanding warrants. They weren't trying to resolve their, their legal matters. They just would like pull up their shirts or pull up their, you know, roll up their pants or turn around and, you know, show me their backs and show me all these rashes and scars, you know, physical manifestations of the brutality that they had experienced, you know, on the front lines. Um, so, you know, you absorb all of that. And, and, you know, as LaDonna always said, Max knows because, you know, she, he talked to LaDonna, um, you know, a lot of water protectors weren't in great shape to begin with. They, you know, a lot of people who arrived there came because they were seeking or, you know, they were already, you know, pushed to the edge or they were alienated or whatever. So these physical traumas on top of, you know, so anyway, it was an extremely difficult couple of years. And so I was offered a refuge in Astoria, Oregon, and I went to Astoria, Oregon, and it was foggy and it was peaceful. And I walked the beaches and I tried to heal myself. And I read, you know, a lot of books and, you know, cooked really healthy food and, uh, you know, listened to some music and, you know, just kind of restored myself. So then I thought, well, what do I want to do? You know, what's next for me? Because I had had these, you know, you get ruined, you know, by having these, you know, kind of heightened experiences as well. It's like normal life, you know, isn't so available to you anymore. It seems pedestrian and um, difficult to just kind of, uh, you know, kind of relate to the dominant culture, certainly, and all that. So, I had published an article in the Progressive Magazine a few years earlier, and in that same issue, there was a lengthy article. I think it was written by Kali. It wasn't just about Kali. And I had had my eye on Cooperation Jackson for a number of years, and every so often I would reach out to them and say, hey, I'm, this is who I am. You know, I'd love to connect. And no one ever wrote me back because, you know, who the, they don't know who the hell I am. So I saw that they were having uh, this incredible architect from the CUNY, uh, I think the grad center. Um, and she was helping them with their kind of transition cities program. And they were having a dreaming, a visioning session. And I was like, I'm going there. I want to be a part of the dream visioning session. And so I, I you know, kind of uh, wrapped up my time in Astoria, Oregon, and I drove like a bat out of hell. I think it's almost 2,000 miles from Astoria, Oregon to Jackson, Mississippi. And I got there in time and no one could believe it. You know, I just showed up, you know, they didn't know, they didn't know me. And I told them, you know, I just drove from Oregon because I wanted to be, I wanted to meet you all. I wanted to be part of this, but I wanted to enter at this moment at this. And, so, and it was incredible couple of days. Kali wasn't there. He was a cop, the, not the 26, but the 25, I guess the one before. Uh, but his uh, partner, wife, I'm not exactly sure, Saki kind of ran the whole thing. She took one look at me and she said, um, we don't tolerate, um, what did she say? Shit. We don't tolerate oppression here. We don't tolerate, you know, something like that. <laughs> so it's like, I was like, good, because I don't either. And so that's, 
I, I'm home, you know, and I, I thought it took a lot of nerve for her to say that to me, you know, but I thought it was, you know, the right kind of nerve. So she just wanted to make sure that, you know, I was coming, you know, with a good heart. And of course, I was, you know, and and, and even if I hadn't before, certainly my experiences at, at Standing Rock and with Indigenous communities in New Mexico before, you know, kind of taught me how to show up in with a good heart. And so... Um, that's how I got to see them, you know, really close up. And I saw they're building the new world in the shell of the old. That's what they're doing. It's land trusts. They have about 40 properties in land trust. They have a couple of acres that they've got in food production. They created, because Kelly is kind of a science geek, they created a maker space. And the idea after we had this visioning session was that in the fab lab, they would create the modular housing that they would then put on the land trust to house every, everybody. I mean, it's just this. So, of course, I fell in love with everybody there. And, you know, some of the people are artists. Some of the people are, um, you know, people who had been fired from Nissan, from, from the uh, labor organizing struggle there. Um, and just all kinds of really, really wonderful, interesting, fascinating people. And um, so I committed to write about Cooperation Jackson and to amplify and lift them up wherever, whenever I could. And I've done it. Within the last two years, I've done it nine different times. And the last one was this amazing interview. Uh, and Max, you know, you've got to take some credit because you it's not just that you commission things and you give people the opportunity to, you know, bring these stories forward. Your editorial guidance is actually really crucial. And you played a very, I think, really important role in helping me to ask the right questions. That Now, Kali and I have a fantastic rapport, and we spent two days in conversation. And we finish each other's sentences, and we cut each other off. And it's very, very exciting. And we genuinely like each other. You know, so it was a, just an absolutely beautiful experience. But I don't, and, and, and I imagine that a lot of that, what emerged, would have emerged. But because of your your scale max you know it was shaped the way that it was shaped so thank you for that and go read it <laughs> can confirm that max's editorial guidance is top shelf top shelf he takes our ideas and turns it into beauty <laughs> sometimes a little too straightforward and and he's very good at kind of bringing the beauty out of the writing and i really appreciate having him as an editor too so yeah you rock max you rock yeah, I want to gush a little bit about Max, about how his voice is something that, like, <clears throat> you know, and when the world is uh, burning, I certainly, like, part of the reason why I wanted to have and hear from my friends, Max being one of the more prominent voices that I turn to at times when, uh, you know, the, we were just, before we hit record through all of this, you know, like, part of this, this entire conversation that threads it, you know, I think is that... Uh, not just like consideration for the other, like, uh, you know, Francis was going into some stuff about, uh, living along the border being traumatic. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll spare you the stories that I have from, from growing up in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, uh, but it is, you get used to a lot of sort of, uh, dehumanization, I suppose, um, by just living in proximity, uh, to a space that way where people are not treated as human. And it, it ideologically it becomes all the easier to slip into a well these people deserve it somehow because they did something wrong they crossed the border they aren't the right color They're, they weren't born in the right geographical area so some of those um <clears throat> uh, I, I think some of those 
ideological mountains are a bit difficult to to shove when you're kind of just accustomed to that and it's been a daily thing in your life um and when she mentioned the uh mccallan detention center like i i used to live and work in mccallan i'm very familiar with that area um but i but i do want to touch on like the i guess the visioning session and and maybe max you'd say a word about this about like the role imagination plays in all of this because i i think if if we are talking about building the new world in the shell of the old and if we're talking about um revolutionary trauma you know like what uh how i mean i i I get the sense that even working obviously in this sort of even being an activist or being active towards egalitarian politics obviously has a toll it takes on your mind and your body and uh and and it ages you you know It, it it's so uh but I, but I guess, Max, could you say a word about, like, imagination in this? Because I get the feeling as well, like, when you started talking about Francis' visioning uh, sessions, um, you know, we're, we're limited by our imagination, our creativity, you know? And if, like, I guess in, like, the, the way that items and ideas can be linked to economy in a Marxist sense, you know, if, if aren't what we can build on this planet, isn't it kind of limited by what we can imagine? And if what we imagine is limited by an inhuman system, then... Um, Maybe part of the process begins with like imagining something bigger or imagining something outside the realm of imagination to a certain degree. Man, well, um, so I got a lot of thoughts firing, and I, you know, genuinely, yeah, appreciate it, and I'm, and I'm humbled by the very kind words from everybody. And you know, their the feeling is very much mutual, right? I'm I'm an incredibly lucky man to get to work with so many brilliant and caring and talented people. Uh, present company very much included um the question of imagination yeah is is i think a really fundamental one right and um is often stuff that jules and i will text about while we're high at midnight (laughs) and trying to figure out how to how to keep going another day uh when the world seems to be falling apart at the seams but you know i think like so there there are two things that I want to say, and then, um, I don't want to, I don't want to like, uh, call on anyone and put them on the spot, but I, I know we may have some other folks who, who have things to say. And so I don't want to take up too much airtime, but just to kind of pick up on that thought, Jules, the thing that, you know, what you were saying about living in the borderlands, like reminded me of is, um, you know, I grew up in Southern California you know, we weren't on the border, right? I had family uh, in San Diego and stuff. And my dad was born in Tijuana and, and our families from that side of the border. Um, but you know, in Southern California, there was very much, uh, a visible sort of border between LA and orange County. Right. And, and between the suburbs and the city. Right. And so you, you, you already just from the moment that you attain some sort of consciousness, you started to kind of understand the world as partitioned off into these different acres of being right. And, and, and belonging some of which you belong to others, which you, you've very much felt like an outsider in. And I think back to like times when walking around LA, right. You see unhoused people. Right. And obviously you see this all over the country, all over the world. And as a kid, you, you know, just, just try to put yourself back into that moment when you see your first unhoused person and you're trying to make sense of 
you know, the fact that you go to bed every night in a warm bed, right? Your parents tuck you in, you have food, uh, you have a bathroom, right? And here is a human being who doesn't have that, right? And, and even as a, as a child, like from the most primitive kind of part of your brain, something seems off. And you're like, why is, why is that person not safe? Why, are they, why do they look sick? Why is no one helping them? Right. And, and living in this society is a constant process of killing that sort of childish, but very true sort of sense of the wrong, you know, that is all around us. Right. And so I think about moments like those because now that I'm older, I think about it as a parent. Right. You know, what my mom must have been thinking of when I would ask, why is, why is that man sleeping on the sidewalk? Right. And I think that, um, you know, you, you maybe don't, maybe you're tired, maybe you had a long week at work, right. You know, maybe, maybe this is the 50th question that I've asked my mom on a, on a, you know, a trip to LA and she just doesn't have the strength to sort of kind of go into all of the details with me. And so in so many ways, I feel like we've all had those similar experiences where the injustice gets pushed aside or explained away. And as a kid, you start to just internalize that, right? You internalize it as perhaps a wrong, but not a wrong that it's your job to fix um, or that this is just the um, cost of modernity, right? Um, that, that, you know, the, the, yeah, seeing people on the street asking you for stuff is, is sad, but you know, look at all the high rise buildings, look at everything else like around you. There are a lot more people not on the streets than there are on it, right? This, I'm just, again, trying to kind of reach back into the recesses of my young brain. And I say all this because you, you start building that sort of path dependency from those early moments on, right? Where you train yourself and you yourself are trained to accept and internalize these um, unacceptable realities of our social, economic, and political worlds, right? And I think that the, 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 the more that you are taught to do that, you know, this, this is something that I feel like, Jules, you and I may have talked about on another one of these live streams or, or maybe on your podcast uh, when David, you, me, and David uh, Parsons were on. Um, but it's like, you know, right now, there, there, there's such a, a push, not just from the political right, but very much from the quote unquote, like liberal center, right? To go back to normal after COVID-19, to, to be done with this hell, we're over it, right? And we just want to get back to the life that we had before this all started. And, um, you know, regardless of, of whatever the sort of outcomes are, and one of the main talking points that Maybe if folks are in their echo chambers, you might not be hearing it a lot, but the right has been hammering this home. They say that, like, actually, the problem is that the quote unquote left, what they call the left, has a sort of psychological disease where we want to be afraid. We want to live in fear. Right. We we have to. So so like this is like Christmas for us. Right. Because we get to rely on the state to save us. We get to live in perpetual fear and everyone else around us is living that way too. So it confirms our belief. And so the rebelliousness from the right is kind of rejecting that what, what they perceive to be that sort of uh, internal uh, psychosis in the left. And I think like the reason I bring this up is, is, you know, I, 
I want to sit down and like say to people like that, look, it's not, not like I want to live like this. Like I'm tired of living like this. I'm exhausted from living like this. Look at me. Like I'm, I've lost all my goddamn pigment. Um, you know, I, I got, I just saw the video of my interview on Marianne Williamson's show and I, I thought it went well, but I was looking at myself I was like, Jesus, I look tired. I have massive bags under my eyes. <laughs> and so like, anyway, the, the, the reason that I bring this up is that it's not that we're, we're, we're addicted to living in fear. It's that we're looking all around us and saying like, can we accept this? Can we just accept what we all just went through? Can we accept losing, you know, Jules and I, we, we work together every week, putting together these episodes that give you just a small sliver of the sanctity of human life, the the vastness and richness of one person's experience that you can never try to capture in a one hour or two hour conversation. You just try to give people a sense of how deep and human, you know, like our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members are. If we just give ourselves the time to listen to one another and respect one another in that way, we talk about, you know, every year around Christmas, we talk about It's a Wonderful Life. We all watch it again. We all see the story of George Bailey with the great takeaway point being that you can never truly measure the impact that one person has on the world around them, on the people around them. Now magnify that by over a million gone, right? So how can we possibly measure all that has been lost to say nothing of all who are no longer the people they used to be? Because they are dealing with long COVID, right? Because they themselves have lost loved ones and they're enduring trauma that has made them less themselves, right? That kind of human toll of what we just went through in sheer loss, but also in terms of the trauma that we have experienced because of how callously so many of us were treated when working people were pushed into the firing line. When um, they were forced to work in close quarters without proper PPE, when uh, for a moment we celebrated the essential workforce and, and championed their right to have, quote unquote, hero pay. And then no one did shit when that hero pay was suddenly ripped away from them, even though the pandemic just kept going on. Right. When you live in a society that tells you how it tells you so clearly how much it values your labor and how little it values your life. Right. You internalize that, too. Right. And again, that path dependency starts to form where you start to believe that you are worth as little as the system tells you you are worth. Right. And so I think that how does this all come back to imagination? Right. Because those things are are cinder blocks put around one of the most unstoppable forces that humanity has, which is our imagination. Right. Our ability to imagine better worlds, new realities, new futures that seem un completely unrealistic, right? To be a slave in the South and thinking of a day when you could own a house and, and your people could be free seems so unrealistic. But it, that, that force of imagination could not itself be killed, right? When you are a Haitian slave wanting and yearning to live in a free society and not be under the boot of an oppressive white, you know, empire, it's, you might as well be talking about living on the moon, but they did it right. As, as, as uh, Nelson Mandela said, it always seems impossible until it is done. And so I think that that force of imagination is one of the things that we most need and we most need to unlock. Uh, and we can see the examples of, of what it can do when you unlock that imagination 
in the minds of our uh, of ourselves and our fellow workers. Right. Look at what, you know, the folks at Amazon just did again. The thought when Christian Smalls got fired two years ago for protesting the the COVID policies at Amazon in Staten Island, the thought that we would end up where we have ended up this week must have seemed just as impossible, right? But to have the courage of and 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 the the scope of that imagination, and when you mix that with human will, when you mix that with solidarity, like I, we've seen that we have the capacity. To save this planet, we've seen what those things when they when they're put together around the world throughout human history, we've seen what they can do. But we live in this goddamn capitalist cocoon that has like walled off our ability to imagine in other ways, right? To feel like any of this is possible. So it's like. It's like, you know, this this is a very crass analogy, and this is the last thing I'll say, right? But it's the first image that comes to my mind, right? Remember when we were, in, when we were kids in school, they would t- teach us about how certain cultures would, like, wrap the feet of women, right? So they would stay small. That's what we do to our brains. That's what we do to children's brains in this country. We wrap them in this cocoon that we call reality, and we stunt ourselves, right? We, we, then we start to believe that, again, that this is all we are capable of. And I think the work that we all collectively do, again, everyone here does incredible work. I think all of it is in some way united, right, by that need and that desire to unlock, right, the the, the beauty, ferocity, and world-changing power of human imagination and love and solidarity. Okay. End of speech. I'll, I'll shut up. <laughs> What's the uh, what's the quote? It's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, you know? That's the idea, right? But like, I like that you talk about the unlocking of the force of imagination because, yeah, we have seen that. We continue to see that. Every labor fight that we see every day is unlocking the force of that imagination and building new, you know, avenues to solidarity. Uh, we see it in the strikes. We see it in the in just the the collective imagination of a, a single workplace. We see what happens with Starbucks when you have just one group who is like a marginal amount of success and everyone else just takes that and writes that blank check for themselves. You know, that is extremely important to pay attention to, you know, that like, even when we are constantly faced with just this juggernaut of bullshit and alienation constantly, right. We can still manage to see victories every day, you know? Um, And that's really important because what else are we going to do except cut through this, you know? And I've talked about this a lot in the last couple of years that perhaps one of the, you know, despite the unimaginable, overwhelming toll that COVID has taken just on this country alone, not, not even saying just the global system. Um, we've also seen that like this sort of the veil that sort of like separated us from any sort of real touching of that imagination was completely shredded. There's no one that can make excuses for that. We all saw it just laid bare, you know, and we saw it erupt in 2020 in the same way that we will see it erupt again because, you know, the contradictions continue to heighten, right? Um, You know, if there's one thing that you can definitely count on is that we're going to see more of this in the future, more of this real struggle to move forward, right? Real need to at least take some action, whatever that looks like, right? Does that look like something that happened in 2020? Maybe, maybe not. 
Maybe it looks like something different. Maybe this is the beginning of a labor revolution in this country, right? Maybe that's what that is. And like, that is something to like pay attention to as well, right? Whatever it looks like, it's a step in the right direction. It's something that we can kind of hang on to, that we can be optimistic about, that we don't necessarily have to like fall into what our various Twitter silos would have us fall into, right? This doom scrolling despair that is constantly just nipping at our heads and our heels every time we wake up in the morning. Frankly, I'm tired of it. You know, I'm fucking tired of it. I'm tired of waking up in the morning and opening up Twitter. And all of a sudden I'm extremely upset. And it's like six o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? Like I've been awake for three minutes. Why am I doing this to myself? You know, why am I not seeking out these incredible stories of a man like Chris Smalls uh, getting fired from Amazon and then doing one of the most successful grassroots worker to worker organizing campaigns with his comrades? What, 25 of them since the 1930s in this country? You know what I mean? That's incredible. It's fucking incredible. It's it's inspiring, right? And you can see how this is kind of filtering into the rest of the conversations, just in the labor movement alone. Not to say the larger revolutionary, uh, ideologically left movement that's happening in this country and has been happening for decades at this point. You know, every every year we're moving a little bit closer, and every year you can kind of see how the establishment, the state, is getting more and more nervous as we continue to keep moving in this direction. You know, that's what I see. I see this weird tightening that happens with the state. I see this move towards, once again, we have this fascist message messaging about queer identities that are out in public, you know, that are now being codified in law again. You know, we see this assault on women's reproductive rights, you know, folks who can get pregnant, their reproductive rights again, in this country. And, you know, we see the constant voter disenfranchisement. We see all of these things that are happening and it's reacting to what I think is a very strong nascent move toward revolutionary action and messaging with a new generation that is far more energized than I have personally seen in the last 10 years. And I think that's important to pay attention to, you know, um, granted my experience is limited because I'm still young. You know, I'm a young person, I'm barely 30, and there's a whole lot of life left in me, you know, but I think that's important to pay attention to. And I think the, the reason why I wanted to bring up this concept of, you know, quote unquote, revolutionary trauma is that uh, we have seen and felt state repression uh, our whole lives. And most certainly in the last five to 10 years, we've seen it real bad, you know, depending on when you started moving into these spaces to, to talk about this or to, to organize against this kind of stuff. Um, especially for someone like me, I'm a, I'm a white woman, you know, I did not have this sort of uh, kind of experience uh, just from my own upbringing, even though I was a poor working class individual. I, you know, experiencing this now in my mid to late twenties and, and understanding what that feels like in the sort of marginal space that I've been in, um, it's important for me to like pay attention to that and to know that that there is a consistent reaction from the state, and that it's terrifying, you know, and that it's life ending for many people, uh, either figuratively or literally, you know, um, and it's like uh, the big question that I think I was thinking of when I brought up this podcast episode 
was a question that was asked during this episode, which is, are we willing to replicate that in our sort of utopian revolutionary society? Is that something, are those steps are the same steps we are going to take? Uh, you know, and as an anarchist, I think of these things because I don't want to, right? I don't want to replicate what would be considered violent authoritarianism in service of turning the dial, you know? Um, and I think that's an important question to ask when we conceive of these utopian societies. We conceive of these revolutionary eruptions that could happen. You know, we see consistently, uh, just internationally, what happens when we have these sort of revolutionary eruptions and how the state reacts and then how, you know, the new sort of um, governments also react to dissent, to conversation, to debate, to these things, right? Do we think about these things? What are the, you know, and these are just questions that I ask myself. Do I have the answers? I'm not quite sure. I don't, I don't presume to be, you know, knowing everything, but I think it's important for us to pay attention to it and to at least ask the questions and potentially puzzle out how we might be able to address that in the future. Because if there's anything the last 15 to 20 years has kind of given us any sort of indication of is that we will have to answer these questions and have a way forward through them or around them or over them or something, you know, um, because we will have to deal with it eventually, if not now, you know? And so that's kind of the question that I ask, how do we, how do we grapple with this when we conceive of our post-capitalist utopia, if we want to talk about this right now, you know, um, and uh, how do we grapple with it now when the state reacts, constricts, and ultimately attempts to suppress what we are attempting to do when we engage in these sort of revolutionary, if you want to call it that, or just, um, you know, uh, dissenting eruptions that happen as a natural sort of reaction to what is a violent, alienating system as capitalism. So, you know, that's, I could go on and on, but I will open up the floor to folks who have questions, you know, want to talk about it. Yeah, I think that's a very important thing that we should probably touch on. So, I uh, at, at severe risk of having to turn in my tanky card here, um, I will I will say that I I have appreciated all the things you've said because I have felt myself um, <clears throat> as a Marxist, sort of like viewing what's happening in Ukraine as uh, I've been like, wow, the the state really sucks, like in any form, and this whole realpolitik thing is like. Right, right. You're like, yeah, because this whole realpolitik thing that like nations are going to struggle for uh, advancement, for survival, um, that uh, that nations and state pursue their own interests, um, that every border uh, implies the violence it requires to maintain it. Um, you know, all of these these sort of maybe even aphoristic sort of statements, um, they're really true, and and that's a powerful question of like, do we want to replicate? Uh, this sort of um, this sort of uh, violence in service of of turning the dial. I mean, when you place it like that, it, it it's honestly that my head's kind of been in that area watching what's happened uh, in Ukraine lately. Um, because the, you know, and and part of the reason why I wanted to hear from my friends as well is because I don't even know how we begin to have the conversation on Ukraine. And what I mean by that is that like the media that we watch. We, we undoubtedly we don't trust we're skeptical at best you know and like distrustful at worst with it and not only do we not trust given media but like 
we there even if you do find an outlet that you do trust there's like selection and presentation bias in that and then if you try to just deal with like open source stuff and build uh, or some construct something from the ground up it's very difficult to build something accurate that way based on just viewing a bunch of stuff that's laying around the internet whether you're telegramming it whether you're twittering it what have you so so all of that, um, in terms of media, um, I think Max can probably say some stuff on that. But I, it, it, out of all of this, though, I will, t I will say that not only has my head been turning uh, more towards like the the anarchist sort of theory side of things lately, um, and like I said, I maybe and maybe this will be the worst of like the the uh, in, in tanky infractions that I'll do here is that I will say that like uh, listeners can't. Uh, see that I have uh, an anti-fascist action flag behind me, but uh, two, three weeks ago, that flag was a USSR flag with the five heads on it. And it's, I will say that, like, my girlfriend was like, hey, uh, you know, um, maybe it's, now it's not a good time to have a, uh, you know, a USSR flag up, you know? And I'm like, ah, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you're right about that, and maybe I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear you um, because I... Uh, really like my decor in this room but um but, sh but she's right you know like uh having uh you know the five heads and a sickle and hammer outside it's it's in front of a window so you can see it from the outside it's probably not the the best thing right now um because and not just on a, on a russia phobic level but like on a uh on a level of like there's just people dying and it's kind of not um not not i don't want to say like uh like it's kind of it's kind of shitty to to have that up right now to to view this kind of inhumanity the way it is and um and to to know what's going on and um and part of what that's it's part of a larger sort of point that I'm trying to make about some comrades who have taken like a pro Russia side of this as if like supporting like to be perfectly honest here like supporting one side of a war or not doesn't really make a difference right now like it it like what are you doing supporting I mean. You can support Ukraine from uh, a popular sovereignty sort of point of view. You can support Russia, whatever. It doesn't like, you're just like, nationalism is kind of like a sports team in a way. It's like you, you get in and you cheer, even if you're not really cheering for the team, you're just participating in that act of cheering. And it's, uh, in a lot of ways, it's kind of pointless, right? Um, so it, it makes me question, uh, going back to Mel's question, like, are we willing to replicate this stuff? Like, what does our version of a dictatorship of the proletariat look like at this point if we even want some such a thing right like um like what is our version of a better future state or no state look like and is is that in any way replicating what mel is talking about are we willing to replicate these uh these things um but also just you know, <clears throat> going back to what Max said about the callousness, like that, like trauma works two ways, right? Like uh, that that James Baldwin quote about the Alabama sheriff, like um, where you know it, the Alabama sheriff is is racist and is, and doesn't see you as a human, but he in turn loses part of his humanity, and you can see it within the vacant stare of his eyes. Um, you know, so I don't know where we want to go with all of this, but I know that Chris has yet to chime in, and I want to throw it over to him. Um, and, uh, and then we can throw it somewhere else after that. But Chris, uh, I'm sorry we haven't gotten to you this entire time, Ram. How are you doing? Frankly, I'm offended. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everything's good. Uh, this has been fascinating so far. I love the eclecticism, um, and the breadth of what we're covering here. Um, 
I am I'm torn on what to bring up next because I have so many different thoughts, just like I think a lot of viewers like, oh my God, there's so many things we can cover. But I was kind of jotting down some notes. No, that's the Gelderless book. That is not my notes. Um, you want to introduce yourself really quick? Yes. So I'm Chris. I'm Mel's friend. Uh, well, I'm all your friends, actually. Um, and I'm currently a co-host on Morning Riot with Mel. Uh, and formerly a co-host on a small podcast called Neighbor Science, where we talked about political economy and anime, but uh, that has been a few years now. So um, mostly I am a geek about political economy, which is my first master's. And uh, to brag a little, I'm currently finishing my second master's in English with a focus on linguistics. So I think a lot about how people tick, basically. Um so on that note, here's a lot of stuff I can't say uh, with any substance at all, but just speculation. <laughs> uh, so I think I tend to interpret, I tend to interpret like social history, like social conflict uh, at its basis as stemming from a kind of maladaptive terror management um, that people in all generations probably are, are raised with or, or have to grapple with uh, in the sense that so terror management is this idea uh, somewhere in the social sciences um, that has to do with like, why do people make these sort of sub-rational decisions? Why do people grapple imaginatively with the world the way that they do? And then how does that bleed out into their praxis, right? Um, so it's very like psychosocial stuff. Uh, I am not an expert on it, but it is very interesting to me. And since I'm obsessed with things like death and its relationship to everything else in life, uh, I, I, I like where it goes. So terror management um, is like people and probably all conscious animals have to deal with this general idea that like they could be annihilated or, or maimed or hurt in any way at any point. Uh, and so much of our behavior uh, is aimed toward, at least instinctively, toward kind of shoring up your position while you are alive and moving and kicking, right? And that's not to put it in purely cynical terms, but just kind of to describe like the basic kind of atomized sort of version of what human beings and other sentient or conscious animals seem to be about, right? Now, and that, again, that's not to strip the beauty from our actions or our imagination or like the ultimate meaning from life or anything like that. It's just to sort of say, you know, pain sucks. Death is hard, hard to deal with. And we're kind of afraid of a lot of things in life. And so we, we try to build and be constructive and be in love and be, you know, um, together. Right. And, and all these things. So, uh, in my notes here, I'm like, well, I take a very sort of deep history view of like class and social conflict where in some form for a long, long time, right. For probably if we're going on a lot of the theories and the data, 10 to 50,000 years of different forms of social conflict that have accumulated and accumulated and combined and combined uh, until now we have, you know, imperialist global capitalism, which is racist and sexist and xenophobic and so forth, right? And has formed this massive, horrific global hierarchy and mesh of hierarchies, right? And I think that along the way, what people have dealt with uh, naturally as forms of uh, forms of terror management in response to different kinds of uh, class and social conflicts, right? These repressions of themselves, their position, who they really are, what they want in life, uh, even as they bargain with just the existential themes, uh, is that you have this run, hide, or fight, or like displace, deny, 
defer all these other options, right? And so people are like just constantly grappling with this throughout history. But as these inequalities roll up, these asymmetries kind of roll up together like a horrible, hellish Katamari Damacy, uh, then eventually like those social technologies, uh, which accrue together with like sort of biophysical and, and other technologies, right? Because they, they love each other. They want to go together. They're, they're to each other's advantage, right? Uh, they form these uh, unjust hierarchies, right? As we tend to think of them, uh, which uh, culminate in things like states, which are kind of biopolitical, necropolitical constructs, if you follow Achimbe and, of course, Foucault. Um, just to bookmark those guys. But um, I think what's happening throughout history is that the, there's various kinds of people uh, who are classed in different ways, of course, but the class is kind of a co-construction where people are uh, in their run, hide, fight, defer, deny, push away options. They're kind of like, they're pushing away the structurally inherent trauma, right? And so the people with power are saying, well, you know, and this is where stuff gets familiar again, right? Because we know what it is to scapegoat, to rationalize, to ignore right to compartmentalize to put out of our heads we're, we're all familiar with these processes like with the homeless person with the the um the detainee or the you know the the landless person or whoever right or the person of color the, or the woman or the queer or the whoever um and these are familiar processes to us and i think that what this is is that this is thousands and thousands and thousands of years of different very elusive and culturally bounded and embedded forms and instances of people continually going, I can't deal with that right now. <laughs> and I, 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 I take advantage from a situation in which I don't help that person. Right. And I think this is where a lot of the moral philosophers got it right, which is to say that like, that's wrong and you should deal with it. Right. Um, but unfortunately moral philosophy is like one fraction of a massive puzzle. And without the various tools that we tend to discuss as leftists, as organizers, etc., moral philosophy is kind of just a, a book on a shelf, right? Um, it's a set of ideas that may or may not be even misinterpreted, especially, of course, as we know, many good ideas are misinterpreted in favor of those very things that create the structural traumas that then lead to these maladaptive behaviors, right? And so I think that... Um, you see that I'm rotating around trauma here, right? Like I'm, I'm not going too far afield. Um, but I think that trauma, morality, and class are all inherently interlinked. I think that morality and class are, are particularly um, embedded with each other or entangled in a lot of these uh, larger unjust hierarchies because what happens is people are trying to adjust their kind of their moral, their existential calculus, they're trying to figure out, okay, is it fine to compartmentalize this? What if it's okay for me to be in this class or that position? Or what if, what if gender is real, you know, or what if it's whatever? And what you, what I believe I'm seeing in history is that the more, um, I'll say authoritative as in like the, the, the leaders of the unjust hierarchy continue to publish and publicize the notion that as we've seen again and again, and again, this is familiar. The lesser people, in big quotes, are the bad ones, right? And if we can establish that someone is a bad one, they get to be lesser people, right? And this brings us to this, it's a machine that is a continuous kind of serpentine machine throughout history, right? It reconstructs and reconstructs and reconstructs and it eats more and more and more. And again, now it's a global system. And we just happen to see it in the iteration or the form of a global capitalism, which is a, a number 
machine. You know, it, it knows how to just count and count and count and uh, sort of ideate things as uh, people as things. I mean, and so forth and so on. And I think the more that you can think of people as things, right, the more you don't even have to have moral calculus at all. And we see that continuously as well. And so it's like, oh, this is not traumatic. This is easy. You know, click, 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 die, 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 right? Click, 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 go to jail, go to jail, go to jail. Um, jail is where people don't exist and I don't have to worry about them and it's no longer in my head. Uh, and and they're the subject and I am the, I'm the, you know, the person, right? And this brings me to something that Mel and I were talking about a few weeks ago where I suggested, it's a, just, again, it's a, a kind of a speculation on what's happening psychologically or psychosocially. And then I'll wrap up pretty quick. Uh, I think that um, I took the example of like witch trials, right? Mel, you remember this conversation where I said the witch is not necessarily created by like um, her actions, right? Her actions are kind of like a, what do you call it? Ex post facto or something. The real creation of the witch is the trial and the punishment, Right. You have to punish the witch to create the witch. You have to punish the prisoner and the slave to create them as a subject of sorts, right? And then you're saying, now we have learned that they are a slave. Now that we have learned this is a woman. Now we have learned this is a a prisoner or or a witch or whatever. Um, And I think from there, there's this collective memory that kicks in as people learn from the social process, the ritual, this kind of magical spell of creating a subject of a kind, right? And then... Because especially in these traumatic rituals, like, say, a public execution, you're like, oh, this person is not to be associated with, right? I guess we're just going to avoid that now. And suddenly you're like, oh, there's that trauma machine going in again, right? And so there's this collective memory that kicks in as a form of just social learning. And people go, we don't do that. We aren't that. I'm not that. Don't even think that I'm like that person over there or those people that are below us who are bad, right? And then... It flows on and on and on. And somebody up there in the high castle is collecting taxes, which are, again, a construction of another kind, right? I mean, you know, what is money but something that you spend, right? Again, a ritual that is the creation of a thing, right? So, and that's, you know, not to even get into that. But what my ultimate question then is, after describing all these kind of ideas, uh, is if we follow these logics, if we kind of follow this to its end, how do we create what is revolutionary? And what do we want the collective memory to learn from our actions, right? What is it that we want this learning process to kick into instead of saying, do not trust the executed, do not consort with the witch, do not help the slave or the homeless, right? Do not free the prisoner, what kinds of actions are we designing? What kind of rituals are we committing in the eye of the people that lead to a creation of a new subject, if you will, or a new person so that we have forward movement in a machine of a different kind, again, if you will, uh, <laughs> uh, maybe not the best metaphor for those of us who don't like machines much, but uh, constructs, right? And how do we consider the consequences of all these things, not in terms of optics, but in terms of acts of creation and that learning process? So that's, those are the things I've been thinking about tonight. I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it's also important to note that like the collective memory is, is uh, sort of arbited by the, you know, the, the, the cultural hegemony that we live under, right. Which is inherently white supremacist, which is, uh, you know, uh, it has all the cards, 
right? Um, and therefore becomes the sort of dominant sort of quote unquote cultural memory that we are subject to, right? Uh, more so in a white supremacist society that is uh, benefits from a global capitalist system, right? And so maybe the idea here is, you know, if we take these, these things into consideration, we're getting a little bit more into the theoretical in a way that I think is really interesting. Um, how do we either break that mold or that cycle or find ways to step outside of it? if not break it, right? Um, and to begin to create the space in which we can have these conversations, uh, hopefully, at least marginally separate from uh, hegemonic worldview, right? Maybe that's kind of the, the concept, right? Um, I think in a lot of different ways, the problem is, is that I don't know that we have yet to find an answer to the question that I pose, that you pose, right? That, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks, when they think about turning the dial, or flipping the the cube on its side, the the regime change, the the you know the change from a capitalist society to a democratic socialist society to a Marxist society, and so on and so forth within borders, nations, which is the only sort of iteration that we've seen so far. Even though we live in a system that essentially has, by virtue of it, you know, by virtue of how capitalism is a global system at this point. Um, rendered uh, borders moot in terms of how we think of how capitalism pervades society, right? Um, maybe that's sort of the idea is that do we want to have, how do we, how do we create the space in which to talk about global revolution in a way that isn't just one nation, but actually dissolves these borders, right? And, and as an anarchist, I'm very interested in the ways in which that, that could potentially happen. You know what I mean? Um, and um, I think in a lot of ways, you know, I'm reaching the limits of my own understanding of my own political ideology because my education is ongoing, right? But I think in a lot of ways, these are important questions to have. I personally do not want to replicate these power structures in service of some ideal that we would call utopian. I don't want that to be the chief concern uh, when we are talking about turning the dial or flipping the coin or, you know, rolling the ball, right? Um, we, I don't want that to be the, the, the sort of the, the concession that we make in order to see this change, you know, because what are we doing at that point, but just replicating unequal power structures, the same unequal power structures that create a, uh, you know, a hierarchy that has someone who reaps the benefits and those who then uh, are the ones who uh, produce the labor that by which individuals can reap these benefits. And you can kind of see this in minor ways in, in certain potential groups, right, where cults of personality are grown out of what is ostensibly revolutionary ideals is kind of the biggest kind of um, example that I could point to. And I'm not going to talk about one group or another. It kind of happens in many different spaces where we have individuals who feel as, you know, who reach this space of either enjoying a certain modicum of power within a social group or what, what have you, um, and does not deliberately do uh, things in order to flatten that power structure, which I think needs to be a conscious decision in my own personal thinking of it, right? Um, I don't want to replicate that. Because then that means I or someone who reaps those benefits is always going to be stepping on the neck 
of an individual who also deserves to feel the benefits, to enjoy the benefits of what we would call our utopian society, right? What does that engender in a revolutionary context? Violence and trauma and generational, uh, you know, um, um, uh, generational trauma, really things that we pass down to the folks that we teach our children our you know, younger generations of folks who come to us for, um, um, advice or strategy, you know, these types of things. I think it's an important question to ask. Do I have an answer to that? No, I just know in my convictions that I don't want to replicate that. You know what I mean? I don't know, Max, if you want to come in and, and talk more about this and have a more nuanced take. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I think this is, this is all, um, brilliant and really generative, right? It's the kind of, it's, it's frankly the kind of conversation that I know um, we will all feel we're going to need time to sort of listen to it on the other side, right? This is one of those conversations where, you know, you're worried that you're not getting your point across. And then when you listen to the whole thing uh, at the end, you're like, man, we were really doing some jazz there, right? <laughs> you know, we were, all, we were all adding some really interesting stuff and together it, it really... I think offers, I think, a really helpful and productive and uh, honest conversation about really big, important topics. Um, the thing that I was just going to add, I guess, if, again, if we're if we're laying bare, uh, if we're admitting our our transpartisan, um, you know, <laughs> transgressions, right? Um, a lot of my dissertation work when I was back uh, at Michigan was kind of blending certain strands of anarchism with Marxism, right? So like I, I looked, I tried to kind of look through the lens of humanism, materialist humanism, I would add, we don't have to get into that. But again, this is another thing Jules and I text each other about when we're very high is like, I see humanism as a fundamentally materialist practice uh, and, and way of understanding the world. Um, but I was trying to sort of understand because I found in anarchist thought and and political history, right, a really, I think, deep attention to self-making, right, to the kind of um, this this belief, right? And I think anarchists take this belief very seriously and more of us should as well, right? But this belief that you um, are not a finished product when you're born into the world, right, that a lot of your desire to get free requires work to de-alienate yourself from the world that you inhabit, the world that, as we've been talking about, right, that path dependency from, you know, seeing the, the homeless person on the street all the way up, right? You know, all of that compounds to alienate us from one another and even our own um, you know, what, what Marx would call our species being, right? What Max Stirner would call our natural self, right? I mean, I think that uh, one of the problems in philosophy, or at least kind of at a, at a surface level reading, is that we tend to focus too much on what that natural, unalienated self is, just like we can get too caught up thinking about what the utopian uh, project would look like when it was finally accomplished. Um, but I think that one of the things that I was always wrestling with is, because um, this, you know, Jules, you know this, like this is this is in many ways like the sort of problem that bore and Chris, this is very, this is very much in your wheelhouse as well. I guess every, all of us, but like 
right? This is this is one of the central problems that um, from which like modern political theory was born, right? Was like, what is the state of nature and how far have we fallen from it, right? And why? And how do we get back there, right? So what was it? Were, were we like Rousseau said, were we just these like, you know, chest beating men frolicking nakedly and taking like what we will? Was it like Hobbes? Were we all just at each other's throats living in this sort of, you know, all against all hellscape? And we decided to make the bargain that to form a social contract and give up certain freedoms meant being able to live in some state of peace, yada, yada, yada. Right. So I say all that to say that, like, we, we shouldn't get too focused on what that pure, unalienated essence of being human is, because, again, going back to that notion that we ourselves are the best diagnostic, the thing that I would focus on is that, you know, that something is off. Right. You know that you are not the person that you were meant to be. You know that you are not living the life that you were meant to live right in a world that denies you the ability to do that and the way that writers like Jose Revueltas or Carson McCullers right this is why I always gravitated to these types of writers that get you know kind of written off as existential so I was like no again they're materialists the material is the human right the human is telling you that something is deeply wrong because the human is always attached to the world that they inhabit we're never no man is an island thomas merton famously said right we are always beings in we are always beings who become who we are in conversation with the world that we're a part of right and when we feel that pain when we feel that anxiety when we feel that unfreedom right that sadness even if we can't name where it's coming from Right. We ourselves as that diagnostic, uh, impressible uh, life force can sense that something is still wrong there. And the struggle to get free, the struggle to de-alienate, right, was something, again, that I found very useful in anarchist thought. Right. Max Stirner was very much like an existentialist uh, thinker in this vein, but he thought through like personal education. Right. You could sort of deprogram. He didn't put in those terms, but I guess that's how we would talk about it now. So why do I bring this up? Because I think that there's something incredibly beautiful in recognizing that who we are and who we will become is not somehow inscribed in us from birth, right? And in a, in a way, we all know this, right? This is why I the most electrifying spaces that I feel like I've ever been in are classrooms, right? Because it is where humanity becomes itself right it is where you as a group can bear witness to that becoming and take part in that becoming and and what i mean by that in a less highfalutin way is like the very concept of learning tells us from the beginning that you are not who you are you do not know everything you're going to know from the time you're a little baby you have to constantly be downloading and absorbing material that exists outside of the 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 you know flesh and blood barriers of your human self, right? You were learning by being in conversation with people. Language is in effect like a way that you can reach out to other people and have them impact you, Have read of the words that someone 300 years ago wrote and feel something in you because they have managed to connect to you through that language that did not exist in your head beforehand, but you engage with it. You guys see where I'm going with this, right? So the reason I point all that out is that recognizing that we are always beings in process, right? And that our becoming is dependent on that 
connection that we have to each other and to the outside world and to everything that we read and that in that process, in that connection, right, we can find the tools to de-alienate ourselves. We can find the we- the means to get closer together, and that is a liberatory and essential project, which brings me back to um, pushing Frances back in front of the stage, because this is something that she articulates so well when she writes about things like mutual aid, right? When she writes about projects like Cooperation Jackson, right, which folks on, on you know, like uh, the more communist uh, left, we tend to kind of, you know, shit on, right? Um, I say we, cause that's kind of, I mean, I'm in this fucking weird nether space, I guess, but like, I recognize that critique very much, right? It's like, okay, you built a community garden. That's great. That's not going to save, you know, climate change. That's not going to stop climate change, right? The IPCC report came out uh, this week and essentially we're fucked, right? Basically what it says is that emissions have not gone down. They've gone up. We've got three years to like drastically change the global economy. Otherwise, and if we want to try to maintain uh, what is it? 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, heating compared to pre-industrial averages. We are currently on track to blow past three degrees Celsius by the end of this century. So like we are careening towards a horrifying fucking future and we need drastic action now. And so that impulse is to look at say small, like, you know, people working where they are doing mutual aid, doing little projects, organizing their workplaces, so on and so forth. It's like, that's good, but that's not big enough. We need a moonshot. We need to take this thing over and change it. But again, what I think going back to that sort of crucible of self and thinking about how if we're going to actually change the world, we need to be the kind of people who want to change it in the first place. And we need to be the kind of people who believe that we can do it in the first place. And we need to build up the muscles that have atrophied that will allow us to build that world together. And that, I think, is what Francis um, articulates in this great piece, the first piece she ever published for us at The Real News, which was about mutual aid efforts after... Um, uh, Hurricane Katrina. No, not Hurricane Ida. Katrina. Hurricane Ida. Um, so this is just a, sorry if I'm embarrassing you, Francis, but I have to read this part. So at the end of her introduction, Francis writes, quote, these organizations, and she looks at a number of them, not just Cooperation Jackson, but she looks at a number of different organizations that were doing mutual aid after Ida. These organizations and these people share the view that mutual aid is a transformative economic practice that at once delivers needed support while dramatically shifting humans away from commodified relations toward productive and ecologically sustainable ones. Put another way, as climate chaos and the accelerating political and economic turmoil that results from it continues to inflict pain on vulnerable communities, mutual aid is a life-saving form of grassroots care for people in immediate need. But, As those who practice mutual aid will tell you, it is also a society-saving means of training ourselves to be and act differently together, to break ourselves out of the cages of helpless consumerism and competitive individualism. That is the radical and beautiful core of mutual aid. It's not charity, not philanthropy, not a band-aid, not a substitute for public investment. It's something deeper, stained in the fabric of who we are like blood flowing to the atrophied muscles we need to work together as we face a future filled with successive, relentless catastrophes. Fucking here, here. God damn it. Yes. (laughs) Yes to all of that. Brilliant. Brilliant. 
I'll let you talk. Yeah. Sorry. That 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 really was a collaboration. That that paragraph. Um, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to. I don't know if this is going too far afield and, and bring bring me back. You know, into the fold if if it is. But I had the most extraordinary day today, and it's like being rooted and being grounded in 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 the work that I have been doing, and especially for the real news in the last few months. Um, I, I wanted to go in a different direction because one of the things I heard very much from Kali in our conversation is, you know, we have to reach out to other communities. So I contacted the local fort here and uh, it is a training uh, facility where they do um, readiness training across, you know, it's, it's Air Force, Navy, Army. Coast Guard, everybody. Um, the 82nd Airborne is coming tomorrow, and Governor John Bell Edwards is coming. The Brits are coming. You know, they have people, our allies coming, and, and they train there. And I was there today. I spent the whole day on this fort and with the public uh, relations um, officer, uh, a major, a very, very fascinating woman. And so she took me around and she showed me uh, all of the like Potemkin villages that they've set up to look kind of Middle Eastern-y, but now they're kind of, you know, uh, transforming some of those looks because, you know, the, the, the arena, the theater is moving. Um, uh, I saw the animals, you know, they have, um, you know, goats and uh, they have uh, actors that come in from, I, I, this is in central Louisiana, uh, which is where I am. This fort is about a, a less than a, uh, an hour away from me. They have uh, local actors come in and play the roles. And some of them and, that I was talking with stayed in character uh, while we were having conversations. It's an incredibly mind-blowing experience. And, you know, of course, you know, it, it, all kinds of aircraft and all kinds of, uh, you know, on the ground uh, vehicles, things that I had, you know, absolutely never seen before. And, you know, some of them were operative and things were happening uh, while we were there, you know, lots of soldiers, uh, you know, first they, when they, when they train first, they do arms with no munitions, then they do blank rounds and then they do live rounds. I mean, I learned so much about the protocols, uh, you know, and, and the training and, and the thing that I, I mostly learned, is that they are moving away at this training facility from insurgency training, uh, you know, kind of small um, operations to big, big operations, you know, like is, I wish I could, you know, kind of attain some of the specific terminology nomenclature, but, you know, basically the idea is Russia and China, you know, like big peer military forces. And that's, so I asked her the question, you know, like, does this training, um, in some sense, lead to the inevitability of the conflict? You know? <laughs> I mean, if you're like <laughs> putting all your resources and all your brain power there, and um, her her answer was no, that this was actually responsive because United States uh, intelligence, you know, has learned that those big after those big countries are doing this kinds of training, so we're you know getting ready to meet that force it's just absolutely fascinating um the big scale but then on the, the individual 
encounters that I had were so touching, were so moving. You know, these were, there's no way to have any kind of preconceived notions about any of these people. And even though they're all in camo and they're all in boots and they have, you know, the badges and the flags and, you know, all of the accoutrement of, uh, you know, a monolith, they're not. They're not. They are individual, you know, they are individual people that are there for their own um, motivations um, and, and, and needs, um, you know, it, it, I guess I just bring this up because, you know, this idea about not replicating structures and the, the vast ignorance that I have about this enormous structure that we're giving $800 billion of our budget to in the coming year. It's like, I wanted to see what we're getting for the money. And it is pretty fascinating what's going on over there. Um, I just wanted to kind of throw that in the mix. Well, you, you bring up a couple of different things. First thing that I th- that I think of is, you know, you do meet uh, uh, enlisted members of the armed forces who are just working class people who are trying to get a leg up, right? And um, in many ways, they enlist in the, the the military because that is the fastest way to pull yourself out of a situation in many ways. But um, oftentimes what that means is enlisting in an army that is in service of American imperialism abroad, right? Um, and I think in many ways, this idea that they are preparing for potential global conflict with the the uh, two biggest powers that they have been saber rattling against for the last many decades is a concerning thing to think about. I, another thing that I would like to bring up as well is that, uh, you know, Chris and I are um, familiar with some folks who work in refugee aid networks in Europe. Um who work logistics trying to connect aid groups that can pull together pallets and pallets of aid, targeted aid, that is then sent via this logistics network to refugee camps in Europe. And after the pullout of Afghanistan, they managed to connect with the United States military because it was the only way that they were going to be able to directly impact aid shipments to the Afghan refugees who ended up in the various uh, forts Uh, and uh, military installations in the United States. Um, uh, Mutual aid groups, including one that I'm a part of here in Omaha, received a shipment from from this aid network, right? Of, we're talking like something like 27 pallets, like like a little bit south of $100,000 worth of aid that was essentially going to be thrown in the trash because the the aid program was going to be ending with the United States military, you know, stuff that would never have been made it into uh, any aid groups anywhere um, was sent to various aid, mutual aid groups that were working directly with the community uh, activists, anarchists, you know, uh, the, in Omaha, it was Omaha Autonomous Action. There was another one, that, another uh, anarchist mutual aid group that was working in, I think, Kansas City. There were like four or five other locations in the Midwest who received a fucking semi trucks worth of shit. We're talking diapers, baby formula, uh, uh, educational materials, an entire pallet full of like 7,000 puzzles, you know, tons of stuff, a lot of stuff that really could not have possibly helped someone sitting in a refugee camp, to be honest, that was uh, donated by corporations who want a tax write-off. You know what I mean? The whole sort of like global network of mutual aid oftentimes 
produces this insane excess that has no material benefit to the people who are supposed to be receiving it. And in many ways, to me, that felt like an illustration of how a uh, you know eight hundred billion dollar or whatever billion billion now eight hundred billion dollar budgeted military can't even possibly help the individuals that they claim to be helping after conflicts that ostensibly the United States fucking started. You know um, that has you know if we're talking about morality in the the theater and fog of war that we have a responsibility to. We, being the United States government and the United States military, has a responsibility to mop up their fucking mess at the end of. You know what I mean? Um, And I say that it's very crude. It's a very crude way to think of that, right? Um, But again, when we talk about these institutions, um, we aren't talking about the the individuals who enlist uh, at the ground floor, looking to better their own lives, perhaps to pull themselves out of poverty, to give themselves an education, for example, uh, to see any sort of career advancement for some individuals, right? We're, we're talking about the institution itself, the sort of big name institution when we talk about these things. I would never possibly, you know, unless this person is a war criminal who goes out of his way to shoot children in the street, you know, that's an extreme example, you know, I'm not going to sit there and 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 um, necessarily denigrate you for your choice to join the United States military. I am, however, going to uh, spend a lot of time talking shit on the institution that has wreaked havoc globally for the last 200 years, you know what I mean? And has positioned itself at the top of a global power hierarchy and continues to reap the benefits of destabilizing regions across the world. Economically, uh, militarily, doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Um, And, you know, they can't even pot, like they can't even do the job that they say they're there to do, to provide democracy and aid to these, you know, these groups, because they can't, fucking do it themselves. You know, there's so much shit that is just left behind because these programs run out of funding or all these types of things. And I think we are getting a little bit far afield here, but essentially what I'm trying to say here is that like, uh, it's interesting that you would go to a fort and you would see where this money is going to. And what you're seeing is a military arm of an imperialist power, uh, gearing up to essentially, uh, at a moment's notice, walk their way into another geopolitical conflict, you know, in a way that makes sense, that's going to be a benefit to the United States, right? As a country, as a government, um, as an imperialist sort of empire building, whatever you want to call it, right? You and I, as members of the United States, don't endorse this. And yet here we are having to see this happen. You know, it happens with or without our permission. You know what I mean? In this sense. Um, And I think... Uh, to your point, Max, I think you make a really good point about mutual aid being the way in which you can cut through even just the alienation of knowing that this is how this country operates and we feel like we can't do anything about it. We feel helpless. We feel helpless when you have an administration, doesn't matter if it's Democrat, doesn't matter if it's Republican, doesn't fucking matter. This state loves to saber rattle, loves to threaten, loves to lobby economic sanctions across the globe until it benefits them, as we've seen with the, the, the gas crisis and you know the Venezuelan oil and all of this stuff, right? Uh, only then can we roll these things back because it benefits us. We, we economically disadvantage a country to the point where we give them no other choice when we say, you know what? 
you know, we'll probably take that. That'd be fine. It'll be, you know, it'll be a, a significantly less of a margin because we're your only choice. We made sure, you know what I mean? That kind of shit is just fucked up. Right. And when you see that shit happening constantly, just look at the fucking news with Biden yesterday. He's standing in front of what the North American Builder Trades Association or whatever. And he's given this nab too. thank you. <laughs> he's given this whole speech. And he says, Amazon, we're coming for you. Watch. And then literally not even a day later, not even a day later, he's talking about how. Uh, he refused to enact the task force recommendations and dropped his pledge to deny federal contracts to companies that bust unions. Amazon was just given a $10 billion contract from the federal government. So once again, lip service. And, uh, and Jen Psaki used to like be a high ranking exec with the union busting firm that Amazon called upon, yep. uh, you know, in to, to thwart, um, the uh, unionization effort in Staten Island. Yep. Um, you know, just, so yeah. how, we feel helpless all the time. It's just outrage constantly. You know what I mean? And you know what doesn't give us outrage, but actually like moves us forward, gives us the feeling that we aren't actually helpless, right? In this country or globally, right? Is continued efforts in spaces that is mutual aid spaces, solidarity with the labor movement, any of these organizing things that give us real material benefits in our communities at the very least allows us to understand the needs of our neighbors and think of ways in which we can meet those needs, which is why things like Cooperation Jackson are cool, why things like just basic community gardens and empty lots in neighborhoods are cool, are worth doing. Sure, is this going to have a material benefit that's going to you know, stretch beyond the boundaries of a neighborhood? Maybe not. Beyond the boundary of a, of a city? Probably not. You know what I mean? However, does that mean it's not a worthwhile project in the first place? No. Bullshit. Call bullshit. It's always a worthwhile project. How the fuck do you think that we, as a group, a ragtag group of like 15 people working with this mutual aid group that generally works mostly hand in hand with the houseless population in Omaha, what we do is we make sure that these individuals are heard, that we can help them when they ask for help. It's not charity right? It's making relationships with our houseless community, not for the sake of because they're houseless, but because we want to build these relationships with our fucking neighbors. You know, what do you do when you build relationships with your neighbors? You help them. That's what community is. You cut through that alienation, mm -hmm. you know, you make sure that whether you're on the, you know, risking eviction or you're living in your car or you live in this nice apartment that, you know, Chris and I have managed to cobble together, right? Uh, it doesn't matter. We help each other because we want to. That right there is like the important part of it. That's the piece of it, right? And like, you know, we take in an entire semi truck's worth of shit. And, uh, you know, we're just walking into this, this charitable warehouse that took this stuff that uh, has not really done much to make sure that it gets to the families. Cause we've got, you know, four or 500 refugee families that moved into Omaha in the last three months. Some of them are still living in Airbnbs because there's just not enough housing here. They don't have what they need. We've got families stocked on top of families who are just fucking left behind by the United States government. You know, when I was working at the community college, I was teaching Afghan refugees English. Folks who would start a conversation with their classmates by going, did you come from a country with a war too? Like, how do you fucking answer that question? You know, how do you even like, like, wow, you know? 
and they're coming here and they're living in a fucking extended stay and they don't have enough money for diapers for their children or they're trying to, you know, I had one student who was zooming into my class from the hospital six hours after giving birth. Okay. So that they could learn English so that they could get a job so that they could find opportunity in this country, you know, and the charitable charitable organizations that are supposed to be the ones that are supposed to be setting them up, getting them on their feet are so wrapped up in red tape that they're falling through the cracks before they even get a chance to get on their feet, you know? So fuck. Yeah. We're going to fucking take that shit. We're just going to pass it out to whoever needs it because that's the only way that we can think of how to do this right now. You know, what do we do? We build these relationships and now we've got whole groups of people who not only know that we can be counted on to make sure that they're not going to just fall through the cracks, but also are sharing their lives with us in really meaningful ways. And at that moment, it's worthwhile. Fuck all the rest of that shit, you know? God damn. (laughs) And that's, I think you like really made kind of the essential connection there at the end, right? Is that it's a cascading effect, right? And we've seen examples of that. And that is what they have tried to keep us from seeing for so long. And I guess to close the loop on like my first long soliloquy in the beginning of this recording is um, I was like, you know, when I brought up the COVID stuff and, and how the right is saying, oh, we're just obsessed with being afraid and so on and so forth. Um, I think one of the essential roles that the left needs to play and has been i think playing uh during all this is um is that we can accept all of this death because the moment that you allow yourself to accept mass death you make it easier for yourself to accept more mass death right and and so uh, we've already kind of seen how what shocked and horrified us in the first months of the covid-19 pandemic eventually became commonplace and then eventually became an annoyance that we wanted to just stop thinking about. Right. So how the fuck do we think we're going to handle like the cascading miseries of climate chaos that are already happening? Right. I mean, we already know the answer to that. Right. So we the, the stakes are very apparent um, and and why we need to fight against that urge to accept what it should be fundamentally unacceptable. Right. Because that is how you you grease the path to oblivion. Mm-hmm. And I think that oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say moving this even further into this conversation, this is the biggest pet peeve that I have about folks who advocate for revolution is that they have already accepted that collateral damage in their minds. When they Mm. think of it, you know, how could you possibly accept that? Right. How could you possibly accept that? You know, knowing what we know about reactions that the state has against uh, comparatively fangless sort of eruptions, right? Comparatively, right? If we're thinking in the way that we think of of other sort of major, major long-term eruptions that happen that cause regime change, you know, how do you accept that? You can't, you cannot, you lose the ability to like even remotely relate to your fellow humans when you do that, you know, and, and I refuse to do that. I refuse. Anyways, Max, you were saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. One, um, Pardon me, I, I forgot if it was um, if it was Chris or Jules who brought up Baldwin, right? But that's where it comes from, right? Is like you know, it's it's um, you, you lose your own humanity in that process, and in fact, we start to kill the humanity in our own children the moment we tell them to ignore that person on the street, 
right? You know, because again, the the most natural childish impulse is to sympathize, is to say, why isn't this person safe? Why isn't there, you know, I want to be safe. I like when I cry out to my protectors, I expect them to come, you know, like that's that's what it, the the most sacred kind of part of existence that I see being denied to other people, and I don't like it. Right? We kill that part of ourselves in so many big and small ways just by living in uh, an unjust and unacceptable uh, social, political, economic order, and that very much includes um, what y'all, you and Francis were talking about. Right? Like. I remember being just so struck by the way that this this guy put it, but um, it was a shame that Hassan Minaj's uh, uh, show on, I think it was on Netflix, got canceled because it was actually really good. It was like kind of John Oliver, uh, but he did a great uh, episode on higher education, which was exceedingly good. He, he went into the adjunct crisis. He went into you know student debt. He went into the administrative bloat. It was a very thorough breakdown of why higher ed uh, sucks. <laughs> like how we have like ruined the institution of higher ed with the neoliberalization of the whole damn thing. But he basically said, he's like, um, universities are, uh, hedge funds with universities attached to them. Right. And, and I feel like I, I very much take that, uh, or, or take that same metaphor to talk about the United States, right? It is a military, it is a, 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 a insatiable war machine, with an increasingly vestigial domestic government attached to it, right? It's like when a potato goes bad and those little fucking sprouts shoot up. That's America. The sprouts are like, you know, our, our military tendrils into the rest of the world. And the, the we're the hollowed out husk that's left here, right? And we see all of the resources that come out of this country just going to that, going into the pockets of the fucking ghouls who are price gouging and profiting off of death and destruction while, you know, we are kind of left to fight uh, and crawl over each other for the crumbs that are left. And so, you know, again, the question is like, what do we do about this? How do we address this? And how does everything that we've been kind of talking about from mutual aid, self recreation and yada, yada, like, how does that all fit into it? And this is, this will be the kind of last thing that I say, right? The cascading effect is, that linchpin, right? And and because it, it it works both ways, right? Like we were just saying, the the ability once you allow yourself to to accept a certain amount of death, you you make it easier to accept more of that death. Same with injustice and and dehumanization and so on and so forth. So and then it starts to filter out, right? Because if you and three other people on the street two of them ignore that homeless person, you're probably going to do the same, right? It's just, we're social creatures. We kind of feed off each other's affects in that way. That is the part of cascading, that cascading effect I'm talking about. But it could also work in the reverse, right? And again, I would bring us back to the Amazon labor union victory in Staten Island is just one example, right? Because, you know, we know that, yeah, it was, it was, you know, kind of started with Christian Smalls. And then we had Derek Palmer. Then we had, you know, Justine Medina and all these great folks who were involved in the worker organizing committee. So they were the kind of nucleus. But then it was um, bringing more people into that nucleus. And then those people brought more people into it. And then when you're in a captive audience meeting and you see your coworker calling out the union busting consultant, you get fired the fuck up and you start like talking back to him to the point that you can build a critical mass of people who in a warehouse of over 8,000 people 
to vote yes for a union and shock the world. Again, it, it's 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 part of being able to understand how the individual connects to the broader society, right? And and how that sort of affect can ripple in ways that we really can't predict, but we're all walking around acting as if we know exactly how it's going to happen. And we don't. None of us knew that the George Floyd uprisings were going to get as massive as they did, but they had that cascading effect. And, you know, Jules and I focus on this in, in terms of the labor movement with working people, as does, you know, but Francis and Mel, I mean, I know you guys do a lot of great work in that regard too, but that's what we kept saying about last year being whether or not it was a strike wave. It's like, well, there's a difference between multiple strikes happening at the same time, which is, which is important. But if you want it, if it's an actual strike wave, it means that those strikes are looking at each other and responding to one another. And that's what we're seeing with Starbucks, right? Soon as Buffalo made it, Boom, like a fucking explosion was set off. And then everyone's like filing petitions. And that's exactly what they've been trying to keep us from thinking is possible all the goddamn time. Whether we're talking about liberating, you know, the slaves, whether we're talking about women getting like equal fucking rights in this country, whether we're talking about working people rising up and taking ownership of the means of production. These are all things that we are conditioned to believe are so impossible because at an individual level, they seem so insurmountable. They seem so, you know, uh, uh, hulking and imposing. Right. And we, to put it as Kurt Vonnegut famously put it, in the prologue to one of his books, we are nothing but the listless playthings of enormous forces, right? But together, right? And when you have that cascading effect that, you know, feeds off of solidarity, feeds off of love, feeds when people see you working together in your community to do a community garden and more people come in, and then that makes you more likely to extend a helping hand to your neighbors, right? You can't measure that. And so we can't just say off the bat, working where I am with the people who are around me in the community that I'm in is not good enough because we can't measure what the ripple effects could be. We have to commit ourselves to doing the most good that we can in, in the, the, um, with the tools that we have. And we have to trust one another to keep doing that work as well, right? As, as the last thing I'll say is as um, <clears throat> Terrell Hagler who goes by the Instagram handle, uh, your fave trash man who uh, I interviewed on, on working people. He's from a, a trash, uh, a sanitation worker from Philly. He has a mantra that he lives by and he says, um, be kind, do good and spread love. Right. And I think that the, I try to live by that. Um, it's really stuck with me, but I think the more people who do that again, <clears throat> we can do incredible things. We've seen it in our history. We just we have to have that imagination that Jules was talking about. And we have to trust that it's going to take more than any one of us individually. Hundred percent agree. I think I think we really are at the start of something truly magical in the next couple of years, and that you know, um, especially in the last what year, we've seen some incredible work being done all the way across the country, um, just in the labor movement alone, but also just organizing in general. Uh, watching so many young folks, you know, and I, again, I'm still young, I'm, I'm about 30, but, you know, younger generations, late, late high school to early 20s get so activated and so radicalized in the last two years and make moves that are just incredible. It's just, 
I have a lot of optimism for the future when I see that kind of shit, you know? And, and just in the last six months, we've seen some incredibly courageous workers who are just like kicking ass, man. And a lot of folks who are coming up against some pretty heavy odds who are maybe not as successful as they want to be the first time, but that doesn't mean that they aren't stopping, you know? And I think that's also a big point is that, you know, especially when it comes to the labor movement, one failure does not mean a total loss. And it just means you learn and you move forward and you try again. And now you have a little bit more of an upper hand than you did previously, you know? Um, and, uh, it's going to become increasingly more important that we have that sort of thought process because we are staring down the barrel of a, a more out and out fascist administration than we've seen, you know, in a while. More so than 2018, 19, or 20. So, you know, that's what we have coming for us. You know, that's what we have that's going to try and stop us from from making these strides socially, materially, whatever you want to call it, right? Um, and I think the the linchpin really is going to be continuing continuing to build solidarity within the labor movement and bringing in the working class and understanding and coming to understand that we are all sitting together in the same boat, moving forward, you know, and that there is common ground amongst all of us, right? Um, and once we get that into the brain pan and really sort of like become individuals who live that sort of idea, then you know, the state be scared. We're coming for them. The state so. be scared, man. <laughs> so I guess I should probably round this out at this point. Um, I want to say that Chris, Mel, Max, Francis, uh, this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, and I, I think what I kind of took from this, um, I don't have answers. Like, I don't think any of us do to like what kind of, what do we want for the collective memory to remember, right? What kind, how do we build a system that doesn't replicate the same systems of oppression that we struggle against? Uh, you know, um, but, I, <clears throat> but, I, but I do know that, like, big ideas can change, you know, like, deeply, un, deeply sort of embedded truths can become open to question. And um, I think, you know, uh, and I want to mention two things, and I'm going to wrap it back together on this, but I... I want to mention that, like, after the Black Plague in the 14th century hit Europe, um, and, like, half of Europe died or something, right? Um, the historian Barbara Tuchman wrote a book about what it was like going through that uh, era. It's called The Distant Mirror, uh, The Calamity of the 14th Century. And um, in there, um, I don't even know if she, I don't know if other people picked out this line that read that book, but she said that after the Black Plague had killed half of Europe, um, somehow, like, these deeply embedded truths became open to question, and then minds that began to question could never again be shut, and perhaps the end of the Black Plague uh, was the unnoticed dawn of modern man. And she says that in the sense that, yeah, there were a lot of people who turned back towards religion, um, but there were a lot of people that dwelled on their earthly time and created art and, um, you know, sought out, I mean, they, they, they sought out communities and built, uh, the Renaissance happened. I mean, it forwarded a damn Renaissance, right? So there's that aspect. And, and I, the other thing I want to mention in this is <clears throat> the Civil War and a book that Max recommended to me called This Republic of Suffering by another historian, uh, Drew Faust. And uh, in that book, she explains how mass death visited the United States in a way that was inconceivable. And once it had happened, 
the social fabric shifted in certain ways, one of which was that the sort of collective agreement of, of what heaven was like um, changed. And so, the idea of heaven went from a sort of theocentric, like it's you and God and that's that, it became more of a family reunion after that. And so, what, how does all that make sense? Well, I think that in the, in the sense of like the Renaissance, that's like a material change, and maybe in terms of the Civil War, maybe that's an ide- a change of ideals. Like it didn't quite manifest into something more substantive than, than a Renaissance, we could say, right? Um, but I think, and this is just, I have to say this, because when I read that, that book on this Republic of Suffering, I realized that the United States became what it, what it fucking is based on death responsibility. Based on reburial of soldiers, based on, I mean, we had no uh, national cemeteries, there was not a Memorial Day, there was not all of these things that make us, that are, that, that are commemorated, Memorial Day, uh, the Arlington National Cemetery, um, none of these things existed, even down to provisions for like the widows of, of dead soldiers, right? Um, so, going back, I have to touch on what, what Mel said before about how the United States is the perpetrator of all these crimes around the world and we don't do anything about it. And, and it's like, you know, the United States is built on death responsibility in causing it. And it was formative, the, the formative uh, years of the United States was spent in service of death responsibility. So, the United States could do these things with an $800 billion budget, but they don't. Um, so, anyway, so we need to build or we need to ask how to build a different kind of serpentine machine you know chris you said that the serpentine machine thing is like this i've called it like the social or the this, uh social murder machine in the past you know where it's just like these violent systems of oppression abstract and and systematic and everything grinds you to a pulp at the end of the day and how do you build a machine that is uh doing the same kind of things like mel is talking about with mutual aid where you're <clears throat> instead fostering relationships uh, and solidarity and um, all those more optimistic parts of this conversation. Um, so, anyway, that, that's all I have at the end of this, but I, uh, I, I had such a good time listening to all of y'all, and, and, and I'm so happy you could be here, and just from the bottom of my heart, thank you for coming to this and, 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 and talking and, and letting me be a part of this sort of thing, too. So, I so appreciate it. Thanks for facilitating. It's such an honest and interesting and oftentimes vulnerable conversation. It, it was lovely. I appreciate it. Yeah, this is great. Thank you, Jules. And thank you, everybody. Yes, thank you all. Oh, and Francis, so good to see you. Yeah, darling. See y'all later. Bye. See ya.